welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Kate Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. Today on Turn On The Lights, we're going to talk about drug prices. Every American, healthy or sick, has felt the burden of high drug costs imposed by the pharmaceutical industry. Take insulin, for example. By some estimates, the price of insulin has increased by more than 600% over the last 20 years. It's no surprise then that nearly one in five adults with diabetes in the United States rations their own insulin to save money. Last year, healthcare companies spent more on lobbying than any other industry. Big Pharma alone spent more than $370 million on these activities last year. With so much lobbying and limited price controls around the pharmaceutical industry, can we ever see a world where drugs in the United States are affordable for everyone? Our guest today is on the verge of building something like this new kind of world. Dan Lillianquist is the architect and current board chair of Civica Rx, a not-for-profit drug company on a mission to make generic medications available and affordable for everyone. The company achieves this effort by circumventing the major pharmaceutical players and manufacturing its own medications, offering them to hospitals and insurance companies at much lower rates. To date, Civica has provided over 125 million units of essential medicines to over 1,500 U.S. hospitals, therefore treating more than 50 million patients. We are really excited to hear from Dan about this model and its potential to disrupt the pharmaceutical industry. Dan Lillianquist, welcome to Turn On The Lights. Well, Dan Lillianquist, thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited to have you explain your ideas and your venture. There's hardly anyone in healthcare that isn't worried about the cost and accessibility and the pipeline of pharmaceuticals. And to leap right into the fray, you have kind of invented a possible solution in the form of Civic Rx. Can you explain us a little more about the idea? What's Civic Rx about? Thanks, Don. Good to be with you, my friend. So Civic Rx is a nonprofit generic drug company built with a really simple mission to ensure that essential medicines are available and affordable to everyone. And that seems like a, a common sense business model, but as it turns out in the convoluted international supply chain for, for drugs, Frankly, there are a lot of market failures that have opened up in the last few years that have made medications that have been on the market for decades hard to source, and and that's led to shortages. And then, of course, you see a lot of gaming around pricing for these drugs that have made them inaccessible from a pricing standpoint at the same time. And the idea for Civica really came several years ago um, in 2016 when Martin Shkreli, you remember the famous pharma bro, cornered a drug that had been on the market for decades. and I jacked up the price by 5,000% and just shrugged his shoulders and said, hey, this is how capitalism works. And I just thought there's got to be a better way. And so- Wait a minute, before you- How could he possibly do that? What's the defect here? The defect really is in that market is, I'm a free market guy, Donnie, this. I thought, okay, the market's going to repair. You cannot generate massive profits and not have a response from the market. But as I started digging into the actual market, there were really- three factors that allowed people like Martin Shkreli to exist. One, you have drugs where there's almost perfect inelastic demand, meaning there's no close substitute. So if you have 
toxoplasmosis in your lung, that the drug that treats that parasitic lung infection is Daraprim, the drug that Martin Shkreli cornered. What wouldn't you be willing to pay to get that drug? So that's issue number one. Number two, there are economies of scale in manufacturing. And what I mean by that is it can take years and millions of dollars of upfront investment to make a single drug, to make your first dose of a drug. And you've got to spread that investment over a whole lot of doses to get your return on your investment. And that's, everybody understands that in manufacturing. That's not news, but that is the second factor. But the third factor was the most interesting and that there are certain drug markets where one or two manufacturers can meet the entire market demand on one production line. If you don't have competition and you don't have kind of price controls, you really don't need five manufacturers. You need one. But if you've got a manufacturer who has, again, perfect inelastic demand, they've already invested and they're already in the space, it's really hard to get private capital to come in and to fund a competitor to beat a market that's dominated by a player like that. And that's what was happening. Yeah. His, uh, his ability to corner Daraprim, that's all, there's also a patent issue there, isn't it? I mean, so, control. So, yeah, Daraprim was invented in the 1950s. And decades after its patented life, there was no longer a patent at play. I mean, ultimately, we grant as a society patents for a period of time so innovators can get a return on their investment. But this drug was way past that. I mean, decades past its patented life. And, and technically, people can go make Daraprim today. They just don't have an incentive to because um, essentially Martin Shkreli could give away the drug for the next 20 years and not touch the profits he made in one year worth of production. And so when you've got markets like that, the, the troubling part, Don, is that these markets for these smaller run drugs, whether they be EpiPen or Daraprim or even insulin, essentially a couple of production lines can meet the entire market demand. And as a result, that gives an incumbent what's called a natural monopoly position. It's really hard to knock them out of those positions. And it's really hard to get capital to flow. I and mean, would you invest $5 million to go make Daraprim knowing that Margaret Skrelly can just wipe out your investment by giving it away? People don't, and, they, and, and essentially, Don, the capital that was flowing into the market was to find your Daraprim because if you can get one of those, you can print money at the expense of really desperately ill people. Civica was a whole idea around Civica as well. You know what? What we're going to do is organize the demand side of the equation that people actually buy these drugs. And we're going to start a nonprofit organization that will police the market. So we see abuses like these. We will enter those markets and seek to repair them and do so by, by lining up pre-purchasing from our, the people who buy the drugs up front. And as a result, we could safely enter a market and start to kind of stabilize the market. We're doing that drug by drug. So, Dan, you're essentially pooling purchasing on the demand side. And then what are you doing on the supply side to meet that demand? On the supply side, so we've organized, we are actually, Civica is a manufacturer. We have our own national drug code, labeler code. So you're actually making, you're yeah. actually making the product here. Yeah, and, and what we do, we, so we have 86 different products on the market today, uh, 50 plus drugs and 80 plus different SKUs. And we make drugs that are essentially essential medicines that have you know, been on shortage or at risk of being in shortage or having high prices, et cetera. And we're addressing those areas where we think there's significant risk of market failure. And um, what we do is we essentially line up our purchasing commitments on one side and then line up our manufacturing supply chain on the other side of the equation to, to mirror each other. 
Pacifica works a lot with contract manufacturers. We bring stable demand for products, multi-year contracts down to the dosage form, and then line up our manufacturing concerns underneath that, including where we source our active pharmaceutical ingredient to ensure that we can meet that demand and do in a safe, redundant, effective way. What's an example of a, maybe a commonly used medication that Civica has helped solve this problem around? Give you a really good example. Our first drug we ever made is a drug called vancomycin, which is a broad spectrum antibiotic that's used in hospitals. Essentially, one of the last line of defense antibiotics that we use. So if you're in an ICU and you've got a severe infection, vancomycin is what will be in your IV to try to kill off that infection and send you home. And this drug was on shortage, very difficult to get. The price went up materially. And, and what happens when drugs go short, meaning there's a disruption in supply, the large systems go and start hoarding. They go and buy up all they can. It clears off the shelves. It's like the run-on toilet paper that we saw during COVID, except that it's- And that in turn, does that in turn yeah. drive the price up? What <laughs> happens, yeah, it drives the price up, but it messes up all the demand signals in the market as well. So the shelves are cleared. The manufacturers then- ramp up manufacturing and oftentimes dump product on the market that nobody buys because they're they're sitting on a big stockpile themselves. And so it just messes up the demand signals. And so we decided we're going to make vancomycin. We're going to, we got our contract commitments. We worked with the company out of Copenhagen, Denmark to bring that product to the market under the Civica label. And we treated um, our first patient with vancomycin in, in September, October of 2019 at the Intermountain Riverton Hospital and it saved the person's life. And that's, that, that's a real drug. So if you end up in an ICU, very real chance you're going to have a Civica-administered drug to save your life. And, and that's where we started. Yeah, and I should, in the interest of full disclosure, say that I've been, thanks to you, an advisor as a volunteer to Civica for some time, and it's a privilege. Who owns Civica? Civica is owned by nobody. And that's the, um, I think maybe that's the most, that's the part of the model I love the most. We were trying to create a first-of-its-kind healthcare utility that is designed to solve a systemic problem, but without the pressures of driving a return for shareholders. But Civica is a non-stock, non-profit organization. We, we are a Delaware company, but nobody on Civica. There's no equity in the organization. There's no way to pay out any of the profits of the organization. It is designed truly to be a, a societal asset. Um, that will intervene in markets and making sure these drugs are available and affordable for everyone. Now, it's governed by 12 health systems and nine health systems and three philanthropies and a few other board members. So we've got some of the initial board members of, of Civica or Intermountain Health, which I'm, I, I serve as the board chair, but the Mayo Clinic, HCA, Providence, Trinity, SSM Health, Kaiser. We've got terrific health systems involved in the governance as well as three major U.S. philanthropies, the Arnold Ventures out of Texas, the Gary Mary West, West Foundation out of San Diego, and the Peterson Center on Healthcare out of New York. And we brought philanthropy on the board to make sure that we, were, that we would stay honest and true to the mission. And the way Civica works is it would take a unanimous vote of all of our board, including the three philanthropies, to pay, one, pay out any profits, to two, change the organization purpose or structure, Essentially, it would take a unanimous vote of the board to give any member of Civica a better deal than anybody else. I mean, we really tried to lock it down so that everybody could join Civica and everybody would get the same deal. And because our goal was to solve a broader societal issue, then put our finger on the scale for one health system over another. And that's how it's governed. 
how many have joined Civica? How many health systems currently buy medications from Civica? Or so we point? have close to 60 health systems that are, that are active participants in Civica, and we've got almost 1,500 hospitals. In fact, I think it's north of 1,500 hospitals in the organization, about a third of the U.S. hospital market and growing. And again, if you join today, any hospital that joins today gets the same deal as everybody who's founded the organization. And that's what we're trying to do. We want to wrap our, our, our arms around the issues that are facing patients, not necessarily the hospitals themselves. So it's in our interest that Civica drugs are available to everybody. And Dan, take a medication. You mentioned vancomycin earlier. What proportion of vancomycin available in the market today is made or distributed by Civica now. So is this a big portion of the market, vancomycin market, or is it a small portion of it? Give us a sense of the order of magnitude of the effort here. This is really important point. Civica is not about market share, but about market impact, really. Mm -hmm. We're trying to stabilize markets. And so if you think about it, we've got about a third of the U.S. hospital market, and we're required, we want those hospitals to minimum a minimum of 50% of their volume uh, by drug that they opt into. Not everybody opts into every drug. So we're actually moving the market, stabilizing the market by moving about 10% of the overall market share of the market. We don't have to move 50% to stabilize the market, to stabilize the pricing, stabilize the supply. So Civica has had an outsized influence on the overall market price and the stability and availability of these drugs. And we don't have to move 50% of the market to do it. So that, that's been one of the best parts about this is that Intermountain Health, for example, we buy half of our vancomycin from Civica, and then we buy the rest from the rest of the market because we want the existing manufacturers to stay in the market. We want to create resiliency by bringing additional capacity to the market, not wrestling away the market from one group into Civica's arms. We, was that we, a surprise we, to you? I'm curious. I mean, it, was it a surprising to you to find that you didn't need a, a significant portion of the market to stabilize the market, that you only needed a relatively small proportion of it, 10% of the market for a medication to actually create a predictable flow to stabilize the market for vancomycin. It wasn't surprising to us in the sense that oftentimes these drugs, they, were, they, they would be on shortage, but they weren't short by 20%. They were short by one or 2%, just enough to get people desperate enough to start hoarding and buying up and raising the prices, but, but not enough where where there were massive areas of the market that couldn't access the drug. And so, yeah, we actually did a lot of analysis up front and said, okay, what would we need to do to stabilize and move the market? There's a couple of things we, we realized that if you had about 20% of the overall market and committed half their volume, you could move it. We have more than that, so we've been able to move it more quickly than we thought we would. The second was the way we approach this is really important. We publish our prices. We are fully transparent on our pricing. We don't offer rebates. The Civica price is the Civica price, and it is that way to everybody. And that was part of the principle that, frankly, Don, you were helpful in helping us. You, you remember the early days we were setting the principles of what Civica would do. We decided we would not play any pricing games. And because we're so clear and transparent what a fair market price is, the market has responded and said, yeah, I mean, we're signaling that a fair price for vancomycin for a one gram vial is not $20, it's $3.50. And, and because we're signaling so strongly in the market, 
the market is responding to what the Civica price is. And that's been really gratifying to us. We're trying to set a fair, sustainable market price. And by being transparent about that's helped stabilize the market. So if a hospital wants to join, first of all, can a, a listener here who happens to be related to a hospital just say, let's join Civica? That's the yeah. you're, you're still open? Any hospital system can join Civica. We actually have a sister company to Civica called Civica Script, and it's for payers. So that applies for payers too. If you're a payer, you want to join the Civica effort, it's really easy to join. We charge a one-time donation per licensed hospital bed. It's $300 per licensed hospital bed to join Civica. And then you have access to all the same contracting rights to commit to buy Civica products as anybody else at the and same time. So you'll show us the list. You show the hospital the list of yep. um, drugs and other products that are on the Civica list now. And then they can pick and choose and say, okay, for this list that we've chosen, we'll guarantee that 50% or more of our purchase will be from Civica. Is that how you get the... That's, that's exactly right, Don. And what's also important to note as, as we've... As we seek to make sure that shortages end, I think it's also important to know how Civica sources its drugs. So we are a licensed manufacturer, but we also do two things that are unique. One, we do not source our active pharmaceutical ingredients from China. 80% of the world's active pharmaceutical ingredients are made in China today. So why don't you source it there? And the reason why, we're trying to create diversified supply of active pharmaceutical ingredients. We, we are actively working to create new sources of supply in other parts of the world. The reason why that's so important is, and we saw this during COVID, if you have a shutdown of a certain part of the world during COVID actually impacts drug supplies elsewhere. There's also a lot of geopolitical contention out right now in the world and the, the risk of a conflict with China is high. And we think it's important to just essentially diversify the supply chain of drugs. And, um, and again, this is an and strategy, not an or strategy. We're not trying to shift away from China we're trying to make sure that there's resiliency in the supply chain, sure there come up an issue in China. The second thing we do, Don, and you know this, we carry six months of safety stock for every drug we make for our entire membership group. And that's really important. In a world where people have been sold on this idea of just-in-time inventory, that works in certain areas. It doesn't work very well with drugs because if you have a shortage, people die. And so we've worked really hard to make sure that we are carrying sufficient safety stocks in reserve. So if we do have an issue with a, a supplier to Civica, that we have months and months of lead time to fix that issue before it impacts the patient. And what that's also done for us, Don, is it's changed the buying behavior of purchasers of drugs at the hospitals. Instead of panic buying and hoarding, they know that Civica has set aside Substantial volumes, they don't need to do that for civic drugs. You're really increasing security for them. Well, That's right. How has the pharmaceutical industry responded? Uh, sounds like you're a bit of a threat to them. No. Well, surprisingly, actually really positively. The reason why Civic has been able to move so quickly with, we're not even five years old yet, and we've produced 120 million doses of medications across 80 plus different SKUs, is because the pharmaceutical industry has partnered with us. We've worked with manufacturers across the spectrum. We've got, I think, 14 different for-profit partners that are saying, hey, there, there's opportunities. If you can make a market, we'll work with you to meet the demands of that market. So we've actually kind of stabilized and allowed some of these manufacturers who had exited the space because of the wild swings in pricing to re-enter under the Civica label and bring additional supply to the market, uh, which is exciting. Are you trying to introduce pricing discipline that they have not 
been friendly to? Sounds like you're trying to keep prices down from your vancomycin story. We're trying to keep prices stable and stable prices with stable returns. I think the real, yeah, no, there are, there, there are people who are excited we're in the market. There's certainly the area where for folks had a monopoly, they're not excited we're there. But we've been able to bring other manufacturers who had previously been kicked out of the market for various reasons. You know, either they, they couldn't get a GPO contract and they lost their ability to compete. We've reintroduced those competitors into the market. So I, I would say, GPO, for the most part, it's, yeah. GPOs are yeah, group purchasing. Me, group yeah. purchasing organizations, yeah. Oftentimes, in an effort to get the lowest price, that group purchasing organization will grant a sole source contract to one manufacturer. And unfortunately, the byproduct of that is you have other manufacturers leave the field entirely. And what Civica has been able to do is bring some of those manufacturers back into the game under the Civica label, bringing stabilized demand where they can safely re-enter the market and bring additional supply to the market. So that's how it's worked. Yeah, how does Civica decide what to what medications to to choose to put onto the uh, Civica formulary? Does it involve addressing what, what which gaps or emergent needs? are you seeing or how does Civica evaluate the market for potential new medications to put on the list? First and foremost, our drug selection advisory committee for Civica is made up of the chief pharmacy officers of our of the largest health systems involved with Civica. So it's our governing members. So I, I mentioned the, the nine health systems that are involved in the board, as well as we've got a founding member tier. We've got another 15 health systems and each one of them picks their chief. Usually it's a chief pharmacy officer who comes in. We meet quarterly. We look at the market. Civica is always scanning the market for potential risks to a particular supply of, of essential medicines. We have an ongoing list that we're working through, but that's the group that decides which drug Civica makes. And Civica doesn't make a single drug that our members aren't willing to buy. And so when our members say, yep, this is important, we'll make the commitments, we'll go make that drug and bring it to market on the benefit of our members and their patients they serve. So that's been a really effective way to do this. We don't, we're not making big bets on drugs that we're not sure our members are going to buy. And that has lined up, really helped us align up the demand side of the equation with the su- supply side of the equation. And that's really the secret to the Civica sauce. Civica sauce, I love that. Dan, thinking more broadly, the idea behind Civica, which is the, the demand side affected by prices and by availability comes together and says, okay, and we will guarantee purchasing from you. You have a certain set of values that we trust, and then you can arrange production of what's needed. That sounds like that's an idea that could go way beyond pharmaceuticals. Have you thought about the, the, the potential more broadly in other areas of healthcare supply and need? Oh, for sure, Don. I mean, it, look, this idea of working on broad systemic issues, look, there's so many of them in healthcare. And, um, you know, I remember early on with Civica getting on the phone with Bill Rutherford, who's the CEO of HCA. You don't get any bigger than HCA. And HCA wasn't big enough to solve this problem on their own. But we felt like collectively, even though we compete fiercely with HCA in our markets and they're excellent at what they do and we respect them, we realized there are certain areas that were just a broader replatforming that need to have, needed to happen to solve a systemic issue that none of us could do on our own. The nonprofit healthcare utility model with clear rules around how everybody is treated was a really great framework to bring people together to collaborate on an issue. We call this disruptive collaboration. We did a- Explain why you say utility model. What does that term mean to an average? Well, well, you think about it, um, 
there are certain things when you're working in a society that you need to work and work effectively across all of societies. Just think about a power company. You don't have 10 power companies in your neighborhood. You have one. And the rules on that power company is essentially delivers power to every house. They're worried about redundancy of the power supply. They're worried about making sure that as the needs of the community grow, they're investing effectively to make sure that power is available. On healthcare, think about drug supply as fundamental to healthcare as power is to your own personal life. The drug supply is that critically important and similar thoughtful long-term investments and stability are required to do that. As we've thought about, you know, we think about it more as a healthcare utility. How do we work together with the broader community to create common infrastructure that is stable because we all have a similar need and it doesn't give a competitive advantage to one system over another to have effective medicines. It's just something we all feel like everybody should have. So when a patient shows up, regardless of whether they're in a critical access hospital in rural Montana or they're in New York City, that the drugs that are available for them are high quality and avail right there for the clinician to administer to save a life. And so when we think about those models, we do think that there are other areas, Don, where healthcare has these points that have broken where a utility model could emerge that'll help solve systemic problems without changing the competitive dynamic. What would be an example of another application of this uh, health utility? I'll give you a couple that come to mind and, and one that we're working on with Graphite Health, data interoperability. We all know how critically important that is uh, to make sure that healthcare uh, for a patient who may be seeing multiple different providers, that data is standardized and clean and understandable and that clinicians have accurate data in front of them when they see a patient. And the, the challenge is, is almost every health system out there records their patient data differently. There should be a standards, there should be an underlying infrastructure around data interoperability that allows when data is recorded on a healthcare condition at Intermountain Health, that is recorded in a similar way at Mayo Clinic. So when a patient or, or at a, you know, at a community clinic or a community hospital so that when we're trying to make sure we're building a clear care plan for a patient, that we're operating under a common set of understood data around that patient's health. That's one idea. I mean, I also look at AI. And healthcare is a, is a real challenge. And, and who's actually making sure that the AI is grounded in explainable clinical knowledge? That may be an opportunity for the health systems to work together to create industry-accepted knowledge graphs that can help train AI to make sure AI is safe for use in, in clinical settings. I mean, those are just a couple of examples that come to mind. Of course, you can take the example of Civica with drugs to things like medical implants or other medical devices. Those are natural extensions of the model. But, but there are systemic issues that are afflicting healthcare systems across this country. And, and frankly, we're just starting to scratch the surface of, of this healthcare utility idea. There should, should be certain areas that are common, and the expectation is that they work a certain way. Maybe the best example I can give in it, an adjacent industry is banking. Not everybody has their own ATM system. The banks all got together and said, hey, here's how we're going to do banking rules across all of these ATMs so that you can actually have banking services around the world and you don't have to have 20 ATMs lined up with your logo on each one to be able to bank. Mm -hmm. And so that's the type of thing I think we need to be thinking more of as, as an industry to create or to take out some of this 
friction and frankly, market failures that are hurting people. That's the promise to me of healthcare utility. It's a really uh, interesting idea. There's some critical infrastructural needs that we all depend on to receive better health and, and care. And you're, you're naming one of them and, and solving for it makes a lot of sense. I'm really curious about what's next for Civica. You, I mean, you're, you built this amazing system in five years. You mentioned it earlier, 120 plus million units sold and, and in such a rapid time period. What's on the horizon for you guys? Well, boy, there's a, it's a target-rich environment. There's certainly a lot of drugs that, I mean, there's literally hundreds that are at risk of going into shortage. Civica will only intervene in markets where there's a clear failure. And, and, and there are lots of the market. The drug market is working well. Just think of statins. Really, the price is low. There's a lot of competitors. They're making fair margins. There's not a lot of price gouging. Civica will, will not intervene in those markets. There's no need to. But we will intervene where we feel like there's a risk of monopolization. There's a risk of abuse. And there, there's a risk of a market failure emerging that really hurts patients. One of the big initiatives, and you may have seen this in the news, we, we uh, announced a year ago, about a year and three months ago, that Civica is developing three molecules of insulin, generic or biosimilar versions of Humalog, Novolog, and Lantus. And that our intention was to actually fix the insulin pricing model. And Don, I remember one of my early conversations with you, this was in October of 2017, you said, hey, one day let's make insulin. And Clayton Christensen, and similar, who's a great advisor to Civica before his passing, said the same thing. So we've raised $160 million from philanthropy to develop these three insulin molecules. And we announced that we would bring them to market for no more than $30 for a 10 milliliter vial and no more than $55 for a five pack of three milliliter flex pens. And then about a year later, we were so pleased that both Lilly and Novo and Sanofi, all three of those major insulin manufacturers lowered their prices. And so um, I think that's, there's a lot of factors that came into that. We know that Civic had an impact and uh, we will be um, bringing our, our products to market. They'll, they should be available in 2025. And our goal is to democratize insulin to make sure that insulin is available and affordable to everybody permanently. That's so important. And I, I know too many stories of patients that are rationing their own insulin and just get access to it. So keep at it. So look, we're, I know you well, Dan, and I admire what you and Civic have done. But let me ask a tough question here, which is, why should we trust you? I mean, you're building an organization that will have a lot of control of the supply of some key things. Your sponsors are, although they're Many nonprofits, some are for profits, and even the nonprofits are pretty aggressive in their business. Right now, you're holding the line, not price gouging, and in fact, trying to lower prices, I think, and playing well with others. But what's the DNA code here that allows us to say, okay, these people can be trusted with such a big and important enterprise? You know, Don, that's a great question. And frankly, I had this idea back in 2016 while on a treadmill at my local gym. And I just, it bothered me that people would just say, hey, here's, this is just how capitalism works. You rip off people and you hurt people. And I just don't believe that's how capitalism should be. And frankly, that's just not how I see markets working. Markets, for the most part, are good. But when we started setting this up, I mean, honestly, I had one health system who, who is no longer involved in the project, and that'll come and become apparent after I tell you the story, who, uh, after we made the announcement, said, oh my gosh, we're going to make a fortune. This is terrific. And, uh, and I said, wait a second, just so you know, we announced in January of 2018 this initiative. And in three weeks, we had 2,000 worldwide news articles published on what we were trying to do. And Don, you remember this. It was crazy. 
we had 12.4 billion media impressions and we didn't pay for a single one. It just spontaneously happened. I got a phone call from a CFO of a health system, a nonprofit health system, I should add, who called me about three weeks into this experience and said, Dan, we're going to make a fortune. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, all we have to do is enter, move the market, and then we'll own the market. And they said, we just told a billion and a half people. And that was literally the, the readership reach was a billion and a half people worldwide that we are a nonprofit organization. He said, oh, no, no, it's really simple. We'll start it as a nonprofit and then we'll convert it to a for-profit after, with a simple majority vote just down the road. And I, I was stunned. And I just said, we're going to do the opposite. We're going to bring philanthropy on board and we're going to make a unanimous vote. And the, this uh, leader was very angry with me. In fact, he kind of chewed me out on the phone for 45 minutes. I'm not kidding. You're naive. You're dumb. And I've gone to, I'm a University of Chicago law school graduate. I never practiced law, but I almost started thinking, you're right. Any governance model, if you have the governance change 10 years down the road, they can change the model. So I came into this thinking, okay, how do we make this as sticky as we possibly can? Don, you remember this because we, we convened in Boston and you were there with us where we sat down and said, okay, here are the principles behind Civica. Nobody can own it. It's, it would, we've got to bring philanthropy on board and we've got to make a unanimous vote to ever change what we do because otherwise we could be creating the monster we're trying to solve for. And what I've been really pleased with is when we get together as a Civica board, there's no personal agenda because it's impossible to actually drive a personal agenda we're talking about the broader interests of society. And what I'm hopeful is when I'm long gone is that 50 years from now, that Civica is still sticking to its mission because the way we set up the governance, it would be really difficult to change those incentives. And, and I don't own a penny of stock in this organization. I'm the volunteer board chair. Nobody does. And so as long as we can keep the membership group aligned on the mission and the purchase commitments, I think Civica is, is a really bright, stable future. And, uh, and we, I expect and we hope that it will stay focused on its mission in perpetuity. Dan, thank you for helping us understand Civica Rx uh, in so much more clearly than I think any of us knew or understood before. But uh, it's really wonderful to hear you talk about it. I, I hope very much that your predictions come true about what happens 50 years from now. In the meantime, if one of our listeners wants to learn more about Civica and, and what you're working on, if they want to learn about the medications you're producing or you're helping to bring to market, where can they learn about that? Yeah, you, you can go to www.civicarx.org. And we have all of our press releases there and the work we're doing. And we hope that people will dig in and help us with our mission. Terrific. And Dan, we have a um, theme on this podcast or a final question that we ask everyone. And it's about your view of the future, whether you feel optimistic about that future or whether you feel a certain degree of pessimism about the, the future of healthcare here in, in the United States. What are your thoughts on what we should or could be looking forward to and how optimistic or pessimistic you might be? All right, look, I am extremely optimistic about the future of healthcare in the U.S. I mean, I really am. Look, the innovation, uh, the new tools that are being developed, the ability to actually start up something like Civica and, and have it have fertile ground for it to take root and move is encouraging to me. I just think that we're getting better and better information about how to keep people safe. I'm optimistic. Look, there are challenges, no question. We've got financial challenges. Healthcare is too expensive. I'm anxious for value-based models to really take hold in the market. And that's what Intermountain Health is all about. Our mission is to help people live the healthiest lives possible. 
But I think that uh, people are starting to realize that when health systems step up and take full clinical and financial accountability for more people and work to keep them well, we can create something that's better uh, for patients going forward. And that's what we aspire to do at Intermountain Health. Well, thank you, Dan Lillingquist, for joining us. It's been a pleasure to hear about your work in Civica Rx. Uh, for our listeners, uh, please find Civica at civicarx.org. And once again, thank you, Dan, for being here on Turn on the Lights. So, Don, I didn't know that you were in on the ground floor of this thing when it began, but Dan was very gracious in his acknowledgement of your contributions here at the okay. beginning. I don't believe everything you hear, but yeah, when uh, it came out of Intermountain Healthcare, where Dan was, and I didn't know he thought of it on a treadmill, but he had this idea. And so he called around. I was one of the PP calls. He said, what, could this work? And uh, so frustrating to watch the defects in the availability and the pricing for the pharma industry. And once I started thinking, I said, wow, I think this might be full of promise. And the whole idea of the utility model, broadly spoken, I think may have some some traction. Yeah, so it's been a pleasure to watch it work. And so far, they've stuck with their principles. Uh, I can't believe there won't be t temptations to take advantage of will be a very large position they're going to have in the healthcare world. But I think they want to be and intend to be driven by their principles and to stick with them. So anyway, yeah, that's the story. Yeah. They'd certainly try to set up a governance model that would prevent that kind of greed from coming into the equation. But that said, I, I share your concern. I worry a little bit about the, the temptation there that might someday present itself. Even with a unanimous board vote requirement, there may still be that, there may be still some temptation there in the future. But for now, it does seem like with people like Dan at the helm, that they will remain true to their purpose and their mission here. And the active presence of philanthropies at the governance table, that's another interesting mm -hmm. Yeah. Model. What intrigues me a lot about Civic Rx is how disruptive it really is. Uh, the Clay Christensen, whom Dan mentioned, famous Harvard Business School professor, often talked about disruptive innovation. And his point was it's very unlikely to come from within the industry. Uh, we don't disrupt ourselves. It has to be somebody come from the outside of the incumbencies. Here you have a tiny counterexample because... It did come out of the industry, the founding or the governing nine partners are big healthcare systems, and they really appear to be changing the game. It's, so it's fundamentally the incumbents, right? I mean, I suppose it's not the pharmaceutical industry. It's not the generic pharmaceutical industry, but it's the consumers of the products of that industry that are the disruptors in this particular case. That was interesting. It was also interesting to me to hear how relatively little they had to move the market in order to stabilize the market. I, I thought that was a bit surprising that they, they really only needed to have about five to 10% of the market for them to actually fix the price and to stabilize the supply and demand, which is a pretty impressive finding. And it demonstrates the leverage in the model. There's enormous opportunity in that. We will see. I'm very optimistic, but stabilizing the market isn't quite the same thing as keeping prices under real control. And I think it's well, the price sure. side of this that that it'll take some. We'll see what happens. I, I I think it's going to work. And the questions you were asking, Kate, are about where else could the supply? We should be digging in more deeply about that. I know Dan's been, and the Civica RX people have been thinking about that. I think wherever there is a a need in the industry that crosses all the players in the industry where the market is not supplying, is not responding in a way that actually meets the need. We run out of drugs that are desperately needed. Prices go way out of control for yep. old standard generics. Where the market feels like that, this utility idea that we're going to get together, take control and do it ourselves for the benefit of everyone involved. I think that's cool. We will see. Yeah, we'll see.
I know there was another consortium along these lines announced around technology. He he described technology as being one of the possibilities, and that seems like an, an emerging one. AI might be another platform, and certainly all systems are going to be grappling with that. I also wonder about labor. I, it's a massive problem around workforce, and we need a better and more creative solution. There was one example of labor sharing that happened between Intermountain and Northwell Health in New York during the pandemic, when the pandemic occurred at different times in those locations sharing staff between them. That seemed like a clever way of, of essentially offsetting labor costs in one market versus another. So this concept might, there may be something in this, but it's, it'll be something, it will need more demonstrations of the healthcare utility model playing out favorably for us to bet more of the farm on it, I suppose. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Watch this space, new ways to act together on, in our mutual interest and in the interest of patients. I hope we're going to see more of this. Thank you. The Turn on the Lights podcast is a production of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. A huge thank you to Don Berwick for hosting with me, Kate Armate. Thank you also to our IHI colleagues, Stephen Waldron and Joanne Endo, our researchers, Bob Jane and Tej Patel, and to the Outcomes Rocket team. And of course, thanks to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in to us. Support for Turn on the Lights comes from the RX Foundation, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at ihi.org. Thank you.